Hey, what's up, everybody? This upload is coming to you July 5th, 2017. My name is Dallas Post, and I'll be your host for this edition of the Post Money Plan podcast. We believe that empowerment comes through knowledge, so our purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought on topics within personal finance, economics, and investing. Don't forget, you can find us at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play as well. Today, we're going to be talking to Brett, an engineer who has experience in preparing responses to requests for proposals for a large engineering firms and dealing with negotiations there. So we'll be delving into deal making, points to consider in negotiation, and things you can use as leverage, things that work and don't work very well, and anecdotes from international dealings and things like that. So welcome to the show, Brett. Thank you. Glad to be here. So could you just give our audience a little bit of background on yourself and your experience with negotiation? Absolutely. So as you said, I started off as an engineer and I started going into sales at first just because I was developing some algorithms that uh, we used to predict gas turbine performance. And we sold those to a big oil and gas customer. It was kind of a pilot program that took off and then made us a lot of money. And I got into sales because I was I snuck into a conference in Houston and accidentally talked to someone who was very high up in, in my company. I didn't realize that he was, in fact, high up or I probably wouldn't have talked to him. And so I talked to him about what I was doing and how I thought it was cool. And he said, well, when are you going to come work for me? And I said, well, make me an offer, not knowing <laughs> who he was. <laughs> and then he did. Or he, he said, okay, well, we've got a couple of positions. Why don't you apply for them? And so I went through the interview process and got into doing proposals, as you said, and then eventually sales and sales management. So what that means effectively is uh, I work in the gas turbine industry and these units sell for a lot of money. So like tens of millions of dollars per unit. And then we'll usually sell several of those in each order. So they're, they're very expensive. And what I would do is negotiate the service agreements that go with them. So it's kind of like when you go buy a, a razor blade and the razor, you buy the razor and then you spend $8 and you start buying the blades. And after a while, you're like, well, I'm spending a lot of money on blades. So it's kind of the same principle for service agreements is a lot of companies in general make money on services. So the buyers are kind of, once they bought the initial product, they're committed to buy more products afterwards. Yes. And so the plants that, that they usually would buy these products. So, and then this, these, these are nice because they go into multiple different places. So You'll have countries buy them for power supplies, so electricity for people's houses. You'll have oil and gas customers buy them to put them offshore to provide power. You'll have pipeline companies buy them to pump oil and, and compress gas. So there's a lot of different end users. And even in the power generation industry, each industry around the world is wildly different. So in North America, the things that drive people to buy gas turbines and what they look for in service agreements is very different than South America in terms of what they're willing to pay and, and how competitive it is and how you get a good price and what they perceive as fair. So you really have to wear multiple different hats when you're selling a product around the world. It's not the same all the way around the world. Uh, North America, for example, is very, very price conscious. But in the Middle East, for example, it's much more reputational. So if you have a good reputation, that matters a whole lot more than the price. So people will pay for what they perceive as being a premium experience there. But in North America, they don't care what your name is. They just want the price and they want to have financial guarantees that you'll perform as you've said. So the drivers for customers are very different depending on who you're talking with. Yeah, that, that's something we can get into later. So some of the issues that I wanted to address is first, the idea behind negotiation 
but then to go into some of the strategies to achieve the results you're looking for in a negotiation. And so that, that definitely seems like a relevant point there. And then we could get into your personal experiences. So why don't we start at the beginning in terms of walk us through what's behind the idea of a negotiation. I mean, you're, th- you're looking for a certain outcome in a business relationship, right? That's right. And so any negotiation is really two or more parties that want something the other parties have. And so usually in, in most cases, it's you know, money in exchange for a service or um, sometimes a guarantee that something will happen in exchange for something else or a feeling of comfort or whatever it is. So that's the purpose of the negotiation is you have something that somebody else wants or you want something somebody else has or it's mutual. But the important part here is that the idea is that you're negotiating something. So it's the value has not been determined beyond question. If it was, then you wouldn't be negotiating. Someone would simply pay the price. So the point here is that you're really trying to decide what is the value as you're approaching this. And, and it's somehow subjective. Or, it is subjective. Or debatable. Yes. And so what that means is, so for example, when you're purchasing a service or an item of some value, you know what it's worth, but you kind of have an idea that maybe there are some other factors that are important. So for example, if you're interested in negotiating the rent in your apartment, your apartment complex, okay, they want to make maybe $10 a month on your rent, but they're also considering how reliably you'll pay them. And if you're going to cause problems for the neighbors, and if you're a clean person, if you're going to cause damages, these are all factors that they're thinking about or are hoping will work out well when they lease to you. It's not purely the rent price. They're also considering the impact on the environment. And just the skills of negotiation, like the reason why an employer might want someone to have negotiation skills. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So part of negotiation, too, is, is uh, knowing how to make things happen. And that's because one of the resources that you're kind of negotiating whenever you're talking to somebody is time. So people will put a finite amount of effort into negotiating before they're done. And at that point, they check out and you've said your bit and then they're, they're walking out of the building. So part of the benefit of having people that know how to negotiate well or, or enunciate what they want and phrase that in a way that's pleasing is it just makes everything happen so much smoother. So no one's wasting time on things that shouldn't be done. Everybody goes back to work more quickly. And people generally feel happier about what they're doing because if you negotiate well, people should come away and say, okay, that went well enough. You don't want people walking away thinking that they, they got their pants pulled down or something so like that. So. <laughs> and employers are going to be attracted to employees who can get deals done and move work forward. People who are unable to negotiate deals and just things kind of idle or get stale and can't move forward that doesn't really attract employers to, to that employee, right? It's a motivating force. So if, if you know how to talk to an engineering team and convince them to do something for you, or if you know how to figure out how to sell something that previously wasn't sellable, that's a very valuable thing to companies. And so it, it could be something as simple as we had a, a guy who used to run credit checks on customers that we do business with. And so I would send in a request and my coworker would send in a request. And then I would always call up the guy that ran these checks and just chat with him about Apple stock because he liked Apple and he, he bought some stock. And so, and then right away, he'd come back to me and say, Hey, I've finished your, your credit check. Here it is. And my coworker in the meantime, wait two or three weeks to hear back from him. So if you know how to approach people, you can make your work happen much more quickly. And that's a valuable thing. And if people spend five more minutes working on your project or if they are willing to put a little more effort in or put a little more care in, they're going to sit there for eight hours a day regardless or more or less. 
but it's helping them to be productive with the time that they have, and it's helping you to be productive with the, with, what, with the tasks you've been given to do. So being able to negotiate and being able to, to figure out how to motivate people and produce something is what really drives the value, I think, for, for employers. A point that comes to mind for me that I think is worth mentioning is that in negotiation, you're looking for some an outcome that's beneficial, ideally not just for you and your side of the table, but for them as well. And it, negotiations don't have to be zero sum in the sense that like one party can win and the other party has to lose if, if you win. A benefit of trade is, is that both parties can win and there, it can be a win-win situation where there's a net gain from that negotiation. Absolutely. And if you go back to, if we revisit the apartment, renting an apartment example, if the average tenant in an apartment complex causes a couple pieces of damage and gets a noise violation and fails to pay rent once, the average person, then they should theoretically pay a higher price for rent than you would because your cash flow is guaranteed to the company. So what I've done successfully, this isn't just made up as an example, but I've lived in two different apartment complexes now, and I've both times been able to lower my rent after the first year of being there by going down to the place and saying, look, I know that your occupancy rate is ballpark this. I know that <laughs> you've got at least a few people that are not paying you on time, and you've got at least a few people that you wish didn't live here. I'm neither of those people. I'm worth keeping around for a lower price. And they usually will give me 5% or so off of the rent instead of trying to increase it. So this is these are actual real apartment complexes in Houston. So that's a point about negotiation is that a lot of times, especially in our personal lives, we don't even think negotiation is an option. Negotiation is about thinking outside the box and thinking about what is possible. You can negotiate about a lot of things that we just take for granted and just you complete a transaction without even thinking about negotiating when, you know, maybe you have something to offer that the uh, service provider or whoever wants, but you don't realize that like they want enough that you could ask for a discount or they could give you something else in addition to what you're normally getting. There's more room for negotiation in our regular lives than we think about. Yeah. And that's really an oddity in American culture is just paying less price and not haggling at all. And I've got another side story here, but um, I buy tires from Discount Tire pretty frequently because I'm hard on the old tires. <laughs> um, I've got a couple of vehicles as well. And so what I've found is if you call three or four different Discount Tires and ask for the same tire, they will all give you about the same price, but they're slightly different. And then if you call them all, so this is what I do when I buy tires. I'll call three or four different Discount Tires around Houston where I live and they'll tell me their price and then I will ask them for their best price. And their best price is usually about 5 or 10% lower than the price they just gave me. And I kid you not, I have never paid the requested price for discount tires, tires. <laughs> and I have bought about 20, 24 tires from them in the last five years. And, th and this is, again, an oddity because in American culture, you walk into Best Buy, there's a price for the headphones, you pay the $20, the next guy pays $20, the next guy pays $20. Nowhere else in the world does that happen besides maybe Western Europe and Australia. South America, no, there's no way. If you go into a, a supermarket, yeah, sure, everybody pays the same price for the apples. But if you walk down the street and you try to buy something in Brazil from a street vendor, they're going to give you what I call the gringo price, <laughs> which is the foreigner price. And then after you, you'll say no, and, and how about this? Or what I like to do is I'll ask the, the person next to me who's a local what they would buy it for. And then, I, and then I offer that. But the point is, in most cultures around the world, you don't pay list price. And even in the United States, you don't pay list price. 
So whether it's the apartments or if it's buying tires, there's kind of a, a subculture in America that most people don't realize exists, which is you can offer something else and they will usually take it or they'll play ball with you. It's kind of something that most people don't know exists, but it's a very real thing. Yeah, we seem to have kind of forgotten about it because our economy is so developed and we have all these huge companies that you walk into the store and they would not even deal with you if you tried to like negotiate with them at the register. But that is ignoring the secondary market of like used items or talking to customer service to see if they can like give you a, a subscription discount or things like that. Or, you know, if your insurance, your car insurance policy comes up for renewal and you see that the price has gone up, you could talk to them and say like, Hey, what can we do here? Instead of just taking it for granted that it's going to go up and you just pay whatever it is. Yeah. And another funny story. I've got lots of things. <laughs> so AT&T is another funny case. So I, I had AT&T cell phone service for, um, it's a family plan for my family and me for the last several years. And every, every six months, like clockwork, I would call them up and I would say, Hey, look, I'm paying you guys a lot of money this month, every month. I'd like to have a better price. And then what they would do, and I kid you not, this happened multiple times. They would say, okay, we'll give you a discount or we'll get you on a cheaper plan. Or they would say, I can't do that. And if they said, I can't do that, I would say, well, okay, look, I'm using, my family's using 30 gigabytes a month. My plan is 40, give me 50 gigabytes. And they're like, okay, fine. So they would give me more gigabytes. Then the next time I would call them up, I would say, look, I've got 50 gigabytes. I only use 30. Let me sell you back 10 gigabytes. And, then, and, this, and this, this happened over and over and over. And to the, to the point where it's almost ridiculous. So, the, But the point is, you don't always have to get what you immediately want. You get something else and then trade that for what you want later on. The point is always have something in your hand or, or try to get something that you can use to get something else. It doesn't always have to be the immediate thing right in front of you that, that you grasp onto, but just something that might be useful later on. And part of what Dallas touched on earlier is that part of the reason that we have this perception of fixed prices in, in American culture is because so much of it is dominated by large businesses. Large businesses just don't have the resource or the interest in catering to one person. And so Geico, for example, tries to raise my car insurance every year or so, every year and a half. I like Geico because I call the phone, they pick it up, and I'm done. I can get off the phone in three or four minutes. But every year or so, they try to raise my premium by about 30%. And then I call up and I threaten to quit. And they say, oh, oh, we've got a discount for you. You can keep paying the current price. And then I say, okay, fine, I'll stay. But once in a while, they won't do that. And then I go to Progressive and then I come back and they give me the same price I was paying before. Yeah. But they'll always try to push the boundary on price with you. And this is called price exploration. So companies will do this all the time. Uber was in an article on Bloomberg today talking about how they were trying. They had started charging people more who were in perceived to be richer or more affluent neighborhoods who they were picking up for the same price for the same trip to go like so five miles from an affluent neighborhood to another one would cost more than five miles from a poorer neighborhood to a poorer neighborhood. They're also trying to charge higher rates to people that were coming from companies that they knew had a lot of expense reports. So if they saw an American Express card, for example, they would charge a higher rate for that. So this isn't made up stuff. This is a company that was published today talking about how they were doing price exploration on customers. And price exploration just means you're not really sure. Remember we talked earlier about how a negotiation is when the, the value is not exactly known. So they're just not really sure what they can charge people. And so they're trying to establish different tiers in the market and say, look, if we charge $10, how many people drop out? If we charge $3, how many people come in? 
that's what they're doing. And it's the same thing when I do negotiations with customers. You know, I'll charge a customer in power generation more than I might charge an oil and gas customer or vice versa. I might charge someone in the Middle East more than I, or less than I charge someone in North America. And it depends on their situation as well. So usually the time that you have the most leverage to talk about and negotiate, and we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but usually when you have the most leverage is when you want to push the most for negotiation. There's this tendency as well, or a mentality that when you go to the brand new car dealership to buy a car, they sell you a $30,000 car and you say, great. And then they say, hey, do you want to buy floor mats for $150? And you say, okay, fine, I'll finance it. Well, here's the thing is the floor mats aren't worth $150, you know, or $300, whatever they're trying to charge you for them. But in comparison to the car's price, it looks small. And so you think, right. oh, whatever, I'm here. I'll just buy them anyways. Yeah. And that's how they make their money is as soon as you put down your guard and you say, okay, well, I've got most, most of what I want. So it's the same thing with negotiation. If, if I go sell a large contract and we've got 80% of the prices ironed out and then I try to gouge them on the last 20% or whatever the politically correct term is, <laughs> the point is at that point, after we've been there for four days and we've got, when we're on the last day and we've got four hours to go, a lot of people will cave because they just want to be done. And you have to know this too. And some customers are very tricky with this stuff. We had one team that we sent to China. And, the, and this, is, this is not a reflection on a culture, but this one particular customer was just, they were dirty. And so what they did is <laughs> they, they put our team in a room and they just beat them into the ground for about 12 hours straight, didn't stop for lunch, didn't offer them refreshments. <laughs> and they just kept pressing them with the same question over and over and over. And so our team finally said, look, give us some lunch, <laughs> give, us, <laughs> give us some drinks or we're leaving. And then they were very apologetic, brought out all the food and stuff like that. But it's a real tactic to try and make people uncomfortable to catch them off guard or to just get them in the last yard before the touchdown and say, hey, give me this too. And then they'll say, okay, whatever, I just want to be done. So you have to be cognizant of that too when you go to buy things is this is an actual strategy that people will try to use or that you can use when you go talk to somebody like the car dealer. Or it's like when you're going to buy a home and if let's say they know you're a newlywed couple, so you're like your desire for a new home is really high and you you express to them that like, Oh, this is our dream home. We couldn't do it with any other home. They know they have you on the rope. You're like pot committed and you don't want to switch houses because you're committed to that house. So then they'll try to upsell you at the last minute or move the goalposts a little bit where by this time you'll be like, Oh, forget it. Like I'll just, I'll do whatever you want basically. Yeah. And that's the really good point too, is that in a negotiation, you have to be willing to walk or you have to give the perception that you're willing to walk. One example from where I work is I was down in Chile and I got summoned there to, to go help close this deal because the customer is just very irate at the time. And I went down there and they said, look, we want X or we're not going to buy this. And this other company that you're competing against offered us X. And so we want you to do this. So we had been there and this is after I'd been there for a couple of days. And this is just right before Christmas. This is a couple of days before Christmas. I think I flew up there the 19th or the 21st of December. And I was supposed to be home with my family and I wasn't. And these guys wanted to be home with their families and they weren't. So they said, I want X. Your other competitor offered me X. I want it. And I sat there and I looked them dead in the eyes across the table. And I said, I'm not giving you that. If you want that, go buy that from that other company. And they, <laughs> and they sat back in their chairs. This is a true story. This is a really big project for us too. They sat back in their chairs. They didn't say anything for about 30 seconds. And then they went on to the next topic and we ended up winning that deal. 
the point here is that as soon as they know that you want something beyond the point of being rational about price or terms, you just lost. So whether it's threatening to move out. So whenever I go negotiate my rent for my apartment to go back to that, because that's a common thing most people understand, I always give my two month notice every single year. Okay. <laughs> every single time. I don't even go down there and ask them for a better price first. I just turn on my, my two month notice and I say I'm moving out a month later. I'll walk down there and say, Hey guys, what's the price <laughs> about three weeks until D day. I'll go down there and say, Hey guys, remember how great of a tenant I am. Remember how you haven't signed anybody for my apartment yet. Wouldn't it be nice if I stayed? And part of this too, is you have to find the person that makes the decision. So one of the reasons that when you go to Best Buy, you can't get a better price is that the cashier has no control over what the price is that shows up in the cash register. So when you're trying to negotiate something, you have to find the right person to talk to. And that's the person that makes the decision. So when you call up Discount Tire, you need to find the manager who makes the call on what to price it at. And most of the people in Discount Tire, they can make the discount, but sometimes they'll call the manager over to approve it. So the point here is that if you find somebody who can make the decision, your life is a lot easier. If you don't find the right person, it doesn't matter how good of a negotiator you are. It doesn't matter. That person has no control over what happens. So in the case where I was down in Chile, I had the decision team in front of me and I was able to push them that direction by what I said at the opportune moment. But you have to understand your audience and you cannot waste time on people that cannot help you. So when I go talk to the, to the apartment renewals, for example, I always ask for an appointment not with the people down at the front desk, but with the property manager. So I, I never waste time with the people in the front office. They're nice people. They have to like you. So you can't go down there and say, look, I'm moving out if you don't give me a better price. By the time you go down there, they already have to know who you are and they have to like you or they're not going to want to help you. Remember that that's one of those environmental variables is they have to want you to stay there. So that's another thing too, is being likable and building that relationship and having that rapport before you ask for the favor or try to negotiate. They have to want something from you or they have to be willing to be receptive to what you talk to them about. So just to summarize some of the points that you've already been making in terms of strategies for negotiation, being willing to walk away in a negotiation helps almost immeasurably over anything else. That's a key point. If you're in desperate need and you express that, like even if you are in desperate need, that's the part that you want to like keep to yourself and you don't want to show all your cards on the table and let the other party know that. It's how you carry yourself. Let's clarify that. It's how you carry yourself. And you always need to be polite and be someone that they want to do business with. And so if you go call up the discount tire and, and you don't say, okay, well, I'm going to go buy tires from someone else. They, they don't care at that point. The point is they have to want to help you or they have to see this as an easy win. So with discount tire, you call them up, you ask for their best price, and then they'll give it to you or they'll say, I don't have that. They'll give you the same price. They give you the same price. You go somewhere else. But the point is you're implying by the way that you phrase that, that you are looking for the deal. So they will understand that if they speak that language and if they're a decision maker and they speak that language, then they'll understand what you're asking for and they'll give you a better price. I have a friend that lives in Dubai and we went to, uh, he, he loves wristwatches and he has very nice wristwatches that cost more than my cars combined, which is ridiculous in my opinion. But what he does, and I've witnessed this again, different, different part is we went into this very fine jewelry store in the premier shopping center in Dubai. And he walks right in, goes up to the counter and you have to, you have to play the part too when you do this stuff. 
So if you're going to buy a $20,000 wristwatch, you need to dress nicely. So he and I both were, we walk in there and with <laughs> this is a side note, but don't overplay the part. So I've heard it said before by people that, that sell houses that when they have somebody who's interested in buying a house that shows up wearing a suit and they're buying like a $50,000 house, they know they have no money because they're, try <laughs> they're trying, <laughs> they're trying too hard. So part of this is, and, and on the flip side, I've heard it said that if you're trying to buy a multi-million dollar house and you show up in shorts and flip-flops, people take you seriously because you don't, you don't do that unless you have a lot of money. <laughs> so, so there's, there's some, some perception stuff here and some expectations. So anyway, so he walks in and they tell him, they tell him what the price is for the watch that he's interested in. He puts it on, plays it a little bit, asks for the price. And they say, oh yes, it's, sorry, it's, uh, it's, $20,000. And this is approximate numbers. I'm, I'm not making this up. Wristwatches really do cost this much over there. It's crazy. So he says, okay, what's your best price? And without batting an eye, the lady knew it. This is not some high rolling person who's owning this bazaar. This is a professional woman who is basically a cashier over there. Maybe, maybe partly a concierge. She said 18,500 without batting an eye. So he got, what is that in, in money? Is it 15,500? Yeah, so so he got a different he got a pretty good percentage off just by asking and I quote for the best price. Again, you have to be careful in your delivery on this and but he just said in a very professional and plain manner he said, "Okay, what's your best price?" and they knew it already. This is not something that they had to think about or go ask the store manager. This is how the culture works. Well, yeah, there. that's a common uh, yeah. Middle Eastern negotiation tactic is just best price. There's a the starting price and a quote unquote best price. And then there's the actual real best price, which, <laughs> but, the, but the point here is like you're trying to figure out ballpark how tight their margins are. And so if they come back and they say, okay, we'll give you 1% off, chances are pretty good. You're not getting another 10% off. You might maybe get another 1% off. If they come back and give you 10% off, you're thinking, okay, the real best price is probably another 5 or 10% below that. So part of this is a gauging exercise where you see how tight their band is. So when customers would come back to me and say, Brett, look, I don't want to pay you $10 for an overhaul. I can only afford to pay you eight. And I come back with 9.5. They're thinking, okay, he's not going to budge a whole lot. And then they go move on to some other topic. But heaven forbid you come back with eight because you just open the door. <laughs> they know, they know, they know you'll go lower. Because once you, once you give up something that easily and of that great magnitude, you have to kind of understand where you are in the conversation too. So what we used to do as a rule of thumb in my past life is depending on where we were in the world, we'd, we'd actually build into our numbers some percentage on where we thought the price would go. And so that was built into our sandbox. We call it the sandbox. And so whenever we go to senior management for approval, we would say, look, this is where I think this is going to end up. This is how I plan for this conversation to go. Are you happy around these parameters? And then I'll try to get it over here as far as I can. But in general, are you okay if it lands somewhere in this area? And then they'll say yes or no. And then once you know that, then you can go negotiate with a customer with confidence because you know what's approved and what's not. And so part of this is you have to know what you're willing to spend before you go in there and you have to know what something's worth. So don't you can't go in somewhere not knowing what a service is worth and try to negotiate. So this podcast is running a little long, so we're going to break it up into multiple sections. So we'll continue talking about it next week. So thank you for listening to this episode of the Post Money Plan podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast channel on the iTunes podcast app.